Welcome to what is hopefully one of the last quarantine episodes of Evidence-Based Radio. I'm very much hoping to get back into the studio in June. But as always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Okay, let's return again to the water. We talked about that last week, but I had uh, several more uh, stories, so I definitely wanted to get those in this week. So we're first going to talk about seals and sea lions. A group of engineers and biologists have come together to describe just how seals can, well, fly through the ocean. Seals and sea lions can have different ways of swimming. Some use their front flippers, while others use their back feet to propel themselves through the water. Australian fur seals and sea lions have wing-like front flippers, while here in the Northern Hemisphere, and right out in the North Atlantic, Gray and harbor seals swim with their feet and have stubby, clawed paws. The question the researchers wanted to answer was why have two completely different ways of swimming evolved in these related animals? An interdisciplinary study by Monash University and published in Current Biology has used a combination of cutting-edge computer simulations and footage of live seals to answer the conundrum. The difference in swimming styles between forelimb and hindlimb-propelled seals is so great that these groups were originally thought to have evolved from separate land-dwelling ancestors, said lead study author David Dr. David Hawking from the Monash University School of Biological Sciences, but the genetics clearly show that all living seals come from the same group of animals. So Dr. Hawking enlisted the help of engineer Dr. Shibo Wang from the Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering. They used advanced fluid dynamics simulations to model how water flows around the seal flippers in different shapes. Our analysis shows that some Antarctic seals, like leopard seals, actually have very streamlined wing-like forelimbs, despite being from the foot-propelled seal family, said Dr. Wang. This was supported by footage of leopard seals swimming at Taronga Zoo, showing them using their forelimbs in a way more similar to fur seals and sea lions. They realized that if wing-like flippers can evolve in seals that already swim with their back feet, this would provide a pathway for the evolution of moving to using those wing-like front flippers as a primary means of moving. Wing-like flippers help leopard seals to surge forward and ambush fast-swimming penguins, said Associate Professor Alastair Evans, who also collaborated on the study. And it seems likely that the earliest sea lions also needed this extra speed to capture their preferred prey, schooling fish. We finally have a window into the early evolution of swimming in seals, apparently. And so while this is super cool for its own sake, there are also potential technical applications. Seals have had millions of years to perfect their swimming, and they can teach us a thing or two about underwater grace and elegance, said Dr. Hawking. 
Learning from them may help us to improve the design of human-built machines, like underwater drones and submersibles, increasing their speed, maneuverability, or energy efficiency. So that's pretty cool, because again, the sea and the oceans are very, very important, and anything that can help us do better exploration of the oceans is very cool and important because we really need to do a better job of knowing what's down there, figuring out how to stop climate change and its effects on the oceans. Um, and, you know, it's really unfortunate that there's a lot of things that we don't even know about in the ocean, and some of them may you know, be going extinct before we even get to learn about them. Um, and so I think we both need to be better environmentally as always. Um, and we need to find some way to make people as excited about exploring the ocean as they are about exploring space. Though again, exploring space is definitely worth it. Okay. So let's move from animals that glide through the water with ease to animals that were once thought to be immobile, but which seem to actually be moving, though perhaps very slowly. Sponges on the Arctic Ocean floor are leaving trails made from the sponge's spicules, which are the hard exterior of the creature that provides structure. These features are often spiky and can resemble old-fashioned jacks in some species. And so basically that's the hard part of the sponge, and then there are little soft-bodied um, polyps inside of the coral that um, are actually feeding. And so these features are being left behind in trails, and so it's basically caused by bits of the spicules grinding off as the sponges move along the rough seafloor. You couldn't tell what the seafloor was because there was such a thick layer of sponge spicules and sponges all over the ground, said study co-author Atan Purser, a deep-sea ecologist at the Alfred Wegener Hemholtz Center for Polar and Marine Research. The sponges reminded me of an endless living plane of life, like something from a Stanislaw Lem story, he told Gizmodo. Now, while sponges are mobile in their larval state, they've long been assumed to be sessile or stationary. They don't have any specific muscles for moving around. And in the lab, sponges have moved by expanding and retracting parts of their bodies, but it wasn't really thought that they do this on a regular basis, because of course, there's a difference between what something will do in a lab and what it will do in its normal environment often. And so the researchers suggest that they may move in order to find food or better places to stay put, or especially to maximize the probability of their offspring being able to survive. 
We thought sponges, when adult, had to make the best of whichever area they ended up settling on after the larval stage, Bursar said. Now it seems, if some species do not like their current situation, they can slowly move off in search of better conditions, or alternatively, to give their offspring some space. Now, the researchers first observed the sponges in 2016 using cameras mounted on a sled rig on the polar stern, an Arctic research vessel. They found, after looking through over 400 images of sponges, ranging in size from over three feet wide to less than a half of an inch to cross, that juveniles tended to be near the start of a spicule trail suggesting the adults are moving to give their offspring more room to grow. Now, there's still a lot we have to learn about this ancient life form that dominates the polar benthic environment. And that environment is part of what helps keep their secrets. They thrive in the pitch black, high pressure and frigid waters of the Arctic Ocean and other deep parts of the oceans. Now, these particular um, sponges aren't the pretty ones that you see sometimes. Not that there's anything wrong with not with not being pretty, but they were kind of um, squat, brownish, tan sponges. And you could see these sort of almost look like mud trails going through um, along the seafloor. And so... It was really interesting um, to find this out. It's really cool. And of course, they don't need to show themselves off because, again, they are living in pitch black. And so it's always interesting to think about that as well when these, when the camera comes in with lights on it and you can see what they look like. Now, we talk a lot about looking for aliens in the skies but as I've mentioned before, I still think we can find organisms right here on Earth that are really rather akin to alien life. Um, there's just so many crazy, weird things in the ocean. We talked about some of them last week with the lanternfish that was found washed up on the shores. And of course, with uh, the colossal squid even Humboldt squid are pretty amazing, and all cephalopods are pretty close to as alien as you can get. And of course, remember, there was that uh, rather fanciful, being kind, uh, paper a couple of years back that actually suggested that cephalopods might literally be alien forms of life. Um, that was pretty ridiculous. And, um, some of the people involved with that are kind of known, um, you know, they're perfectly good astrophysicists or whatever their actual field of study is. But when they start looking into biology, they don't know what they're talking about. Um, and of course there's a lot of that that happens and, you know, that's just the nature of people in some ways. It's not unique to, uh, these particular academics. Um, but there are often people who try to go outside of their field of expertise and they think that because they're an expert in one thing, they must be able to figure out this other thing that they've never actually spent any time studying, um, but, you know, what are you going to do in life? 
Some people are just going to do that. And you just have to be sure that peer review is picking it up. But of course, the way to avoid that kind of peer review is to also publish in uh, journals that are not specialized in the thing that you are writing about. Um, And so as uh, always, you need to be skeptical about things and you need to really be asking yourself, you know, what kind of qualifications does this person have? Um, And of course, in this case, one of those uh, questions can always be, have they been featured on Ancient Aliens? And if the answer is yes, then um, I would definitely take what they are saying, especially about um, alien life forms potentially being on Earth with a large grain of salt. Um, I... I know that there's at least one person who was involved in the study who I'm almost certain has been featured on Ancient Aliens. Um, And heck, by this point, they might have even talked about this idea on Ancient Aliens. I don't think I'm caught up completely on the show yet. Um, As longtime listeners will know, it's one of my weird guilty pleasures. Um, I love watching Ancient Aliens. I really like the... um, the narrator's voice for one thing. Um, but I just, I like to know what the next weirdest wacky thing that they're talking about is. Um, and of course the other thing too, is that I'll, I'll sometimes find places that I hadn't heard about before and they'll say weird things about it. And then I'll be able to go and actually look at what the archeology span says about it. And so I'll be able to learn about real things based on the ridiculousness of what uh, the ancient aliens people were talking about. So that's always fun. Um, But yeah, I don't recommend it if you aren't someone who enjoys interacting with bad ideas. Um, For some reason, I do. I enjoy interacting with bad ideas. Um, I think it's personally important in my life to know what those bad ideas are, especially so I can talk about them here and tell why they're bad, um, especially if they're not obviously bad. Um, But yeah. All right. That is enough of a digression. (laughs) Uh, Let us move on now to an animal that is mm, much less mysterious, uh, but they have a neat adaptation which allows them to stay underwater for up to 18 minutes. And so we're going to be talking about anoles. And so anoles are generally considered to be tropical tree-dwelling small lizards. And they are generally found in those trees near streams across Latin America and the Caribbean. I actually had an anole once for a while, Um, and it was, it was really cute. It was a very small one, probably no longer than, uh, my longest finger. And, um, he was, he was very good. His name was, um, I believe his name was Dr. Lizardo. Um, but don't quote me on that. I'm pretty sure that was his name. Um, he unfortunately passed away while I was on, um, while I was away. So, um, I didn't really know what happened but these things happen. Anyways, 
Uh, When they are startled or frightened, they will jump from trees or rocks and dive into the water. Once submerged, they can actually exhale and they create a bubble that sticks to the edge of their snouts. And so the researchers suspect that they evolved this ability in order to escape predators and to forage for food. Researchers observed six different anole species in tanks filled with waters to observe how the trick works. They saw that the anoles would inflate the bubble when they exhaled and then would draw it back through their noses as they inhaled. The lizards could use this sac as a sort of rebreather for up to 18 minutes. The scientists used an oxygen sensor to monitor the amount of air within the bubble and found that the oxygen concentration did decrease while the lizards were diving under the water and suggest, therefore, that the lizard is breathing the air within the bubble, which makes sense. Um, And so they also noted that the air bubble stuck to the lizard's hydrophobic scales. So basically, it has these scales that are um, hydrophobic, which means they don't like water, but the bubble will stick to them, um, which is quite interesting. We think this is operating like a rebreathing device, says the study's first author, Christopher Bocha, a PhD student at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, to National Geographic. A rebreather recycles exhaled air and allows a diver to access the unused oxygen within it. Now, the bubbles may act as a kind of physical gill, which can pull oxygen from the water while allowing the carbon dioxide to escape through diffusion. And so it diffuses out of the bubble back into the water. And so by dis- by observing the different kinds of anoles, they found that the ability to use the bubble for underwater breathing evolved five separate times in five different lineages of anoles. And so anoles are actually a quite prolific group with over 400 different species having been identified, and they have a wide range of both size and color. And they're actually known for their various abilities to adapt to the environment. And so the researchers hope to look more into how the behavior evolved. Anoles are a remarkable group of lizards, and the number of ways that this taxon has diversified to take advantage of their environment is mind-boggling, says Lindsay Swerk, a biologist at Binghamton University in New York. And so, yeah, you might have also heard of anoles because they, um, you find them in Florida a lot, and there was, when there was that cold snap in Florida, uh, the poor lizards were falling out of trees and things like that. Um, there were other lizards as well, but I think that anoles were definitely one of those uh, poor unfortunates that were being frozen and dropping out of trees. Um, but yeah, they make they make good pets. Uh, I recommend them as long as you're willing to uh, deal with the fact that you need to feed them crickets. Uh, that was one of the problems uh, with mine. And one of the nice things Uh, My husband does not like insects, and he allowed me to have an anole, and that was really nice. Um, You know, we have cats now. I mean, we had cats at the time, but we don't have really space to have a nice terrarium, so I can't have one right now. But maybe in the future, I will get another one. Um, I will get uh, 
uh, Dr. Lizardo, uh, two. <laughs> um, so yeah, but anyways, speaking of mind boggling, let's once again, turn to our beloved friend of the show, the tardigrade, AK the water bear, or my personal favorite these days, moss piglet. We know that these tiny animals are pretty much nigh on indestructible. They can survive the vacuum of space, high doses of radiation, temperatures close to both absolute zero and above the boiling point of water. Pretty much they are just the amazing survivors of the natural world. And now we know that they can also survive being shot out of a gun and impacting a sandbag target, up to a point, that is, according to a new study in the journal Astrobiology. And so the researchers were looking into the possibility of life being deposited on a planet via asteroid impact or other celestial event. And so this is referred to as panspermia, and it's the idea that life originated from space. Of course, I always think that that's just one of those things where it just pushes it back one step. So if life didn't, if life originated in space, well, where did that life originate from in space? Where else on another planet? Like, it's an interesting idea, but it also doesn't tell us a lot. Um, other than the idea that I think people think it might be cool that, you know, the earth was seeded with life. Um, but I'm much more interested in how life literally actually began. And um, just as a complete aside, the latest um, idea on that front is that uh, life began in sort of um, intermittent pools. And so there would be water sometimes, and then it would dry up and there would be times when it was hotter and colder. And that allowed those chemicals to come together. Um, cause there's some chemicals, you know, one of the big arguments against it is that, oh, well, these chemicals do, you know, don't work in water. And so the idea is that there would be water sometimes in order to catalyze some, uh, chemical reactions, and then the water would dry up, and then other things could happen. And then eventually you get these actual organisms that are able to reproduce, um, you know, using RNA and then DNA. Um, and so I think that it's quite possible. Uh, it's, you know, almost a dead certainty that life originated on the earth and not from somewhere else, in my opinion. But, um, you know, it, it could be true. But again, I, I digress. <laughs> and so the researchers were intrigued by an August 2019 accident where the lunar lander Bereshit crashed into the moon's surface with a payload of thousands of tardigrades. The researchers wanted to know if they could have survived such an impact. And so astrochemist Alejandra Trapas and astrophysicist Mark Burchell, who both work at the University of Kent, decided to find out just how much of an impact the mighty water bear could survive. The team used a lab-grade two-stage light gas gun, which is technically more of a cannon than a gun. 
It uses gunpowder combined with pressurized helium or hydrogen to fire items up to five miles per second. The researchers first fed 20 freshwater tardigrades, or Hypsibius jujardini, a diet of moss and mineral water, and then froze them in order to activate a tun state, something that basically resembles hibernation. And so once frozen, they were placed into hollow nylon bullets, or sabots, and they were fired at a sandbag target. They were then collected from the target, poured into a water column, and the length of time it took them to recover was noted. And so the control tardigades all recovered after eight or nine hours, with those impacted at 825 meters per second recovering at a longer rate, suggesting some effects of the impact. So they definitely didn't come out of it unscathed, but they were able to eventually revive themselves. However, at 901 meters per second, they simply fell apart. In the shots up to and including 0.825 kilometers per second, intact tardigrades were recovered post-shot, but in the higher speed shots, only fragments of tardigrades were recovered. The researchers wrote in their paper, Thus, shortly after the onset of lethality, the tardigrades were also physically broken apart at impact, as impact speeds increased. And so they also found that tardigrades can withstand shock pressures of up to 1.14 gigapascals. Anything above that turned the poor little moss piglets to mush. And so meteorites tend to have higher shock pressures than that, but it's not always the case. So some tardigrade-like animals might survive landing on another planet. So this means that Pam's Panspermia is unlikely, but not impossible. And this is because some microbes have an even higher threshold for impacts than our friends, the tardigrades, though they might not have some of the other amazing abilities to survive in the vacuum of space. The researchers wrote that they can now confirm that the tardigrades which crashed crash-landed on the moon would not have survived, though, because the shock pressure of the metal frame hitting the moon would have been well above 1.14 gigapascals. That complex structure under... That complex structures undergo damage in shock events is not a surprise, the researchers wrote. The peculiarity here may be that recovery and survival is still possible until just before the impact events begin to break the tardigrades apart. And so this research actually also suggests how life might be caught and detected on moons in our solar system, like Enceladus or Europa. A slow-moving orbiter might be able to catch living organisms being ejected in plumes of water vapor originating from the moon's deep oceans. If you collect it and it dies on impact, how do you know whether it's been dead for millions of years? asked Anna Butterworth, a planetary scientist at the University of California, Berkeley, who has studied plume impacts on spacecrafts, but was not involved in this research. If you collect microscopic life and it's moving around, you can say it's alive. And so that is very exciting. All right, we are going to take a break and then we're going to come back and actually talk about tardigrades again for a moment, um, along with bobtail squid. 
So do stay tuned. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. As the COVID-19 vaccines become available, you may be asking yourself, should I get it? Will it help me get back to doing the things I love, like meeting friends or traveling? And can I do it without putting my family at risk? You've got questions. That's normal. So visit GetVaccineAnswers.org for the latest information on the COVID-19 vaccines. Getting back to the moments we miss starts with getting informed. It's up to you. A message brought to you by the Ad Council and the CDC. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton, so come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, we are back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. We were talking about tardigrades grades before the break, and we are going to continue with that for a moment. NASA plans to send a payload that includes around 5,000 of the moss piglets, along with 128, quote, glow-in-the-dark baby bobtail squid to the International Space Station next week. The tardigrades will be helping the researchers to study the specific genes that make them just so amazingly hardy, and hopefully this will in turn give us more insight into the long-term impacts of traveling and living in space. The research is being spearheaded by Thomas Boothby, Assistant Professor of Molecular Biology at the University of Wyoming, who reiterates some of their amazing physiology. Some of the things that tardigrades can survive include being dried out, being frozen, and being heated up past the boiling point of water. They can survive 
thousands of times as much radiation as we can, and they can go for days or weeks with little or no oxygen, he said in a news briefing. They've been shown to survive and reproduce during spaceflight and can even survive prolonged exposure to the vacuum of outer space. And so for this study, astronauts will be examining the molecular biology of the tardigrades in order to try and identify immediate and long-term adaptations to life in low Earth orbit, which includes exposure to increased radiation and to zero gravity. The hope is that by studying these hardy little creatures, more can be learned about how to protect humans in the future as they travel further and deeper into space. The bobtail squid, on the other hand, are being studied for their symbiotic relationship with bioluminescent bacteria that live in a special light-producing organ inside the squid's body. The researchers will study this symbiotic relationship to see how the microbes react to animal tissue in space. Animals, including humans, rely on our microbes to maintain a healthy digestive and immune system, Jamie Foster, a microbiologist at the University of Florida and principal investigator of the Understanding of Microgravity on Animal-Microbe Interactions, or UMAMI, experiment, said in a statement. We do not fully understand how spaceflight alters these beneficial interactions. And so the squid are born without any bacteria and usually get it, get it from the ocean around them soon after they're born. Um, but the researchers plan on seeding the squid with bacteria as soon as they are thawed in order to be able to observe the process from the start. By studying the molecules produced during the process of establishing the symbiosis, the researchers hope to be able to determine which genes the squid activates or suppresses in order to make the partnership work. This could then be translated to how humans will be able to look after their microbiomes while traveling in space. Because of course, as we all know, there are actually more microorganisms on you at any point in time, on you or in you, I should say, than there are actual cells that are technically, uh, technically contain your actual DNA. Um, so it's important for us to figure out how they are going to work, whether they are going to thrive or um, be weakened by... Um, being in microgravity. And so, yeah, that'll be really interesting. So what we are going to do now is we're going to actually go back to under the water. We've been up in space and now we're going to go back under the water and we are going to talk about electric fish communication. It turns out that like a human telling a story, the fish knows that a good pause can make the listener tune into what is to come next. According to research from Washington University in St. Louis, pauses prime the, sec the sensory systems to receive new and important information. There is an increased response in listeners to words, or in this case, electrical pulses, that happened right after a pause, said Bruce Carlson, professor of biology in arts and sciences and corresponding author, author of the study published in Current Biology. Fish are basically doing the same thing we do to communicate effectively. 
And again, not only is this a really cool finding because it connects fish communication to human communication, it also reveals an underlying feature of the brain and a mechanism for how pauses allow neurons in the midbrain to recover from stimulation. Carlson, with a team that included Sunehiko Kohashi, a former postdoc research associate at Washington University and first author of the paper, conducted research on African fish called mormirids. These fish use weak electric discharges or pulses to communicate with one another and to sense prey. The scientists tracked the communication between fish housed under various conditions. Fish that were alone tended to hum rather continuously, producing fewer and shorter pauses in electric output than fish housed in pairs. And of course, by hum, they mean electric hum, not actually humming. Um, there are some uh, fish that do make specific sounds, but in this case, they're talking about uh, electrical impulses. They also found that fish tended to produce high-frequency bursts of pulses right after a pause. The researchers then changed up the experiment by inserting artificial pauses into ongoing exchanges between fish. They found that the fish who received a pause increased their own rate of electrical signaling directly after the pause, suggesting to the researchers that the pauses were meaningful to the listener. Getting back to humans... Researchers have found that listeners tend to recognize words better after a pause, and those who are good at oration tend to pause right before something they want to emphasize or have an impact. Human auditory systems respond more strongly to words that come right after a pause, and during normal, everyday conversations, we tend to pause just before speaking words with especially high information content, Carlson said. We see parallels in our fish where they respond more strongly to electrosensory stimuli that comes after a pause. We also find that fish tend to pause right before they produce a high-frequency burst of electric pulses, which carries a large amount of information. So the researchers then turned to look at the brains of the fish. They applied stimulation to electrosensory neurons in the midbrain and found that the neurons got less and less sensitive to the impulses. This is called short-term synaptic depression. They found that in the mormorids, a pause of as little as a second was sufficient to allow the synapses to recover. Pauses inserted in electric speech reset the sensitivity of the listener's brain, which was depressed during the continuous part of the speech, Kohashi said. Pauses seemed to make the following message as clear as possible for the listener. The researchers note that this is a mechanism most likely found across the animal kingdom with animals who communicate, including humans. Now, we've talked a lot about animals found in water over the last few weeks, but let's talk about water itself for a moment. Well, at least ice, that is. Researchers have found that the formation of ice requires a little bit of heat. A new study in the journal Nature Communications describes the movement of individual water molecules on a frigid graphene surface. They used a technique first developed at the University of Cambridge called helium spin echo. 
In this technique, a beam of helium atoms is fired at the water molecules, or whatever molecules are being studied, I would assume, and then tracking how the helium atoms scatter once they impact into the forming ice in this case. It works a bit like a radar detector, which uses radio waves to determine how quickly something is moving, according to first author Anton Tamtugel, a postdoctoral researcher at the universe at the Institute of Experimental Physics in Graz at the Graz University of Technology in Austria. This is more like a radar trap for molecules on the atomic scale, he noted. Not, this not only allows them to collect data at the atomic level, it also helps them record the earliest stages of ice formation called nucleation. This is when the water first begins to coalesce into ice. Um, if you think about those viral videos you've seen where someone takes a bottle of water out of a freezer and then shakes it, which causes it to instantly freeze, that's because they have triggered the nucleation effect. Um, and so that's basically what they're talking about is that first ability of the water to create actual um, ice crystals. And so this happens in a fraction of a billionth of a second. And so it's pretty hard to observe. <laughs> Studies relying on conventional microscopes can capture the beginning moments of nucleation, just can't capture the beginning moments of nucleation because they aren't capable of taking images fast enough to keep up with the reaction. And so in order to better the odds of getting information, some researchers will slow down the molecular movement using liquid nitrogen, lowering the temperature to around minus 418 degrees Fahrenheit. Anything warmer, and you need to use echo spin. In the current experiment, the graphene was cooled to between minus 279 and minus 225 degrees Fahrenheit. When the team looked at the results, they were actually surprised. What came as a surprise to us in this signature we had from the repulsive interaction from the water molecules not liking each other, Tem Toggle said. Basically, the water molecules initially repelled each other, resisting nucleation. They had to kind of overcome this barrier before they could form the islands of ice, he said. So they then generated computational models to view the interactions of water molecules in different configurations. They found that initially the molecules all orient in the same manner, with their two hydrogen atoms pointing downward. The molecules somewhat cluster, but due to their orientation, maintain a few molecules worth of empty space between them. This is enough to resist nucleation. That's what forms this barrier, where it will cost energy to nucleate, Tamtoggle said. And so that energy is supplied in the form of heat. Once that bit of heat was added, the water molecules were able to reorient and renucleate and to re and to nucleate, forming the desired ice. Adding more molecules to the system also helped to overcome the energy barrier because that allowed for more molecules overall to be potentially close enough to come together. And again, this happens at extremely short timescales. 
The next step is to recreate the experiment using different kinds of surfaces, including so-called white graphene or hexagonal boron nitride, which shares a similar structure to normal graphene, but bonds more strongly with water molecules, which might cause nucleation to unfold more slowly. Water is such a ubiquitous molecule, right? But it appears there's still so much we don't understand in detail, even though it's a simple molecule, Tem Toggle said. There's still much more to be learned. And of course, as is often the case, there are practical applications. Having a better understanding of this could help with developing new and better ways to combat icing on planes and airports and in other places where ice buildup is of a particular problem. And so that is really, really interesting. And of course, it's so funny um, how true that is. There's so much that we don't know about water. Um, water is such a unique molecule, and um, it really is. Uh, if you want something to uh, be really impressed by, uh, water molecules are definitely one of those things that are very impressive. They can form so many different phases. Um, I'm always seeing uh, headlines that, you know, uh, scientists have found a new state of water. Um, and so it's just such an interesting molecule uh, in the way that it interacts with other molecules, in the way that it is essential for the uh, propagation of life. Um, water is definitely one of those things that if you want something to be in awe of, if you want to feel awe about the natural world, um, something that's, you know, tangible and real, Water is kind of the thing. Um, I think it's not surprising that it's also involved in a lot of uh, spiritual beliefs and practices because water is just so essential and it's also so interesting, um, you know, from the fact that it freezes on the top. Um, you know, if you have a body of water, it freezes from the top rather than the bottom. Um, all sorts of things that are just so fascinating to people. Uh, throughout the ages and the fact that you can have it as all three states of uh, solid, liquid, and gas in basically the same place at the same time is really spectacular. It's just something that is totally unique and interesting. And um, it's so interesting that there's still so much we don't know about it because it's literally one of the most essential molecules in existence. Um, the only one that I think can be argued to be uh, probably as essential to humans would be O2, um, oxygen, because that's what we need to breathe. But without the water, there'd be nothing to breathe. <laughs> there'd be no organism to be able to breathe. So um, yeah, I think it's so interesting and so cool how um, much there is to still know about this molecule that is so essential to our uh, very existence. Okay, so we've been oscillating uh, between the um, 
between space and the ocean. And now we're going to talk about something that kind of involves both at the same time. And so researchers propose that the heaviest elements may have been formed in novel ways, such as in the destruction of two neutron stars. And so they've been studying a chunk of the Earth taken from deep below the surface of the Pacific, and they found that it contains traces of a rare type of plutonium and iron, whose chemical makeups suggested they were formed in powerful collisions or explosions before landing on the Earth and being incorporated into the crust. Now, it's long been thought that heavy elements such as gold, silver, platinum, uranium, and plutonium were created in supernovae. But this new study in the journal Science suggests that there are not enough of these events to explain the abundance of the heavy elements in Earth's vicinity. Instead, they propose that they may be created in other celestial events, such as the collision of two neutron stars, or certain rare types of supernovae. It's amazing that a few atoms on Earth can help us learn about where half of all the heavier elements in our universe are synthesized, Anton Wallner, a nuclear physicist at the Australian National University, as well as the Helmholtz Center in Germany, and the paper's first author, told the New York Times. They suggest that the rare isotopes iron-60 and plutonium-244 fell to the Earth sometime in the last 10 million years before sinking nearly a mile to the bottom of the equatorial Pacific floor. They are able to say this because the rate of radioactive decay for these elements, uh, of such as plutonium-244 that was infused into the Earth's crust during its formation, would have long since decayed, strongly suggesting the extraterrestrial origin of the samples. And so by modeling the deposition of the two isotopes, they found that the models matched with a previously suspected supernova near the solar system, in cosmic terms, obviously, near is very relative here, um, around 3 million years ago. It also suggests that some of the iron may have come from another nearby supernova some 6 million years ago. Again, nearby, very relative term. Space is very big, so nearby is a very large chunk of space. Um, but the model suggests something else might have caused the deposition of the plutonium-244, the collision or merger of two dead neutron stars. Our data actually suggests that it might be that both scenarios are necessary, Walner told NPR. It's both. It's supernovae explosions that produce a part of these heavy elements, but also neutron star mergers or any other rare events. And so one of the big things about this is that it would actually be the first time that there was ev that there has been evidence produced for such a collision. No one's ever talked about the idea of um, these neutron star uh, mergers as being an origin of this material. And so the team is actually now studying a new, larger sample of the heaviest known element 
in order to further explore its possible origins. So that is very exciting. And so finally tonight, uh, we are going to go back into space um, and finally leave our interface between the ocean and space and talk about Mars for one more time, um, just because there's so much good stuff coming from there. And, um, you know, I think that ingenuity is definitely something that I'm just so excited about and I've been loving being able to follow. And so, uh, it's sixth flight was a bit of a doozy. Um, it, uh, was supposed to just do a couple of things that were going to test its limits, but oh goodness, did it, uh, did it have a bit of a problem? Uh, this was due to an error in the processing, um, but the mighty helicopter managed to pull itself out of a bad situation and landed safely. Now, the helicopter was supposed to ascend at 33 feet and then fly in a southwesterly direction for 492 feet, followed by two more trips, one for nearly 50 feet and one for 164 feet before landing at a designated spot. Unfortunately, as uh, you know if you've been following this at all, Ingenuity flies using a combination of software and cues from its onboard camera. And unfortunately, that did not go to plan this time. Um, and so it turns out that there was a bit of a glitch. And uh, so... Havard Grip, the chief pilot of the Ingenuity Mars helicopter, explained that each time an image arrives, the navigation system's algorithm performs a series of actions. First, it examines the timestamp that it receives together with the image in order to determine when the image was taken. Then the algorithm makes a prediction about what the camera should have been seeing at the time at that particular point in time, in terms of surface features that it could recognize from previous images taken moments before, typically due to color variations and protuberances like rocks and sand ripples. Finally, the algorithm looks at where those features actually appear in the image. The navigation algorithm uses the difference between the predicted and actual location of these features to correct its, estimate, its estimates of position, velocity, and attitude. Unfortunately, it uses timestamps for this. And in this latest flight, one of the pictures failed to go off. And that actually meant that every subsequent picture had an incorrect timestamp. And so that just absolutely threw off the poor little uh, helicopter. And so at the 54 second mark, there was this anomaly. And so what's really cool about this, though, is that Ingenuity managed to continue its flight and land within a stone's throw of its target location. And so they were trying to be able to, you know, test its limits and boy, were they successful at that. Uh, they didn't mean to be, but um, it's really exciting 
Um, there was a lot of problems where it was basically oscillating back and forth because it didn't know what to do with the information it was getting. Um, but it, it did it. And so, uh, it's very exciting. Um, of course, because NASA tends to design these things very robust, robustly, you know, it was it was designed to tolerate significant errors without becoming unstable, including errors in timing, uh, Grip wrote. And so this built-in margin was not fully needed in Ingenuity's previous flights because the vehicle's behavior was in family with our expectations, but this margin came to the rescue. He said that the helicopter muscled through the situation and so it used its rotor systems, actuators, and power system, which all responded to the increased demands of the wild flight. And again, managed to land pretty much exactly where it was supposed to. So that is very exciting. All right, that is all the time we have for tonight. Uh, thank you so much. You have been listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.